But anyway, turn to John chapter 20, and Carol this morning, she and I were talking, and she reminded me of how we started in here. Several pastors have said this, so I'm stealing this, but the book of John is shallow enough for a child to wade in, (laughs) and deep enough for uh, an elephant to swim in. Many people have said that, and we were talking about that back and forth, and it is so... True. You can read this. Uh, many pastors, if, you, um, uh, if somebody doesn't know where to turn the Bible to read first, they say, well, why don't you go to the book of John? Other people have other books, but many people say that. And uh, the book of John is a different gospel in this sense, in that it focuses on the deity of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 20, at the end of it, John Verse 30 and 31 gives us the reasons that he wrote this gospel. It says this, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now most people believe chapter 21 is the P.S., to this book. In other words, it was written at a later time. John threw this in later, like the PS. I want to tell you also what happened. So 30 and 31 sort of was the sign off. And then John wrote and attached chapter 21. But as I was going through this, this week, the Lord showed me a couple things that I hadn't seen before. I shared them with my wife, and she went, duh, I know, I already know. But uh, to me, it was a big revelation, right? So uh, 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 I'm hopefully going to share that with you uh, today. But here's where we get, uh, I said, we, last week we were at the crux of all human history. We're discussing now and thinking about and studying the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection is ultra important. In fact, if the resurrection never happened, we would be foolish, folks, to be sitting here today. It would be sheer foolishness if the resurrection didn't happen. And the Bible sort of tells us that. His resurrection in Matthew 16, 1 through 4, is sort of the sign, so to speak, from heaven that puts the stamp of God on Jesus's ministry. It was attested by hundreds of witnesses and provides proof that he's the savior of the world. So you could go on and on and we'll talk at the end, what is the meaning of the resurrection? We'll do that. But let's do this. Let's begin by just reading through this. And remember, I was uh, reading a little bit from J. Warner Wallace about the resurrection this week. If you don't know J. Warner Wallace, he's a fascinating guy to listen to, and here's why. J. Warner Wallace, before he was a uh, Christian, was a homicide detective. So he comes at the uh, proof through the scriptures in a much different way than many people. And one of the things J. Warner Wallace, I'm glad he agrees with me, but it's probably the other way, I agree with him, is that when he is detecting during a major crime, the first thing that he does when he gets to the scene is he tells the people who are in charge of the witnesses to separate the witnesses. 
Get rid of them because, or get rid of them in this sense, into different places so that they don't talk to each other and start to learn from one another what the other knows because he doesn't want any collusion. He wants it to be authentic testimony that leads to the prosecution of the crime or the indictment of the crime, charging the criminal, and then ultimately to the prosecution of the crime, right? And so that's the first thing he does because he has in mind that he doesn't want any collusion. And when you read the Gospels, that's one of the things that should bless your heart in such a great way. There is no collusion, And we're going to talk about that. What do I mean? There's no getting together to fashion the story so that it has the desired outcome that the witnesses want to bring about. Get it? But they're just telling the facts as they have seen it. And so you're going to get different perspectives. If you didn't get different perspectives, you'd scratch your head and say, oh boy, somebody's lying here or they're manufacturing this. And that's what's so beautiful about the different Gospels. Look at this. Here's what I mean. Now, the first day of the week, John chapter 20, verse 1. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. And I want you to notice this as I'm thinking about the different levels, the many different levels on which you could read this chapter. You could read this chapter just to find out the information. If you did that, you wouldn't find all the information. You would if you read all four of the accounts together, as best as you could do. You could piece those together. In fact, uh, one author has written it like this. Let me uh, see if I can find it. Uh, The events of the resurrection on the resurrection morning aren't easy to harmonize. You have to read all four Gospels. We're not told of the incidents in the precise order of their occurrence. That shouldn't make you upset. You ever been involved in a traumatic event and you tell the, somebody about the event and then you go, oh, wait a minute. I forgot to tell you about what happened here. That shouldn't bother you in any bit. We must remember that different groups of disciples, this author says, who were staying in various locations in and around the city went to the tomb and that they were not expecting Jesus to rise. That's really important. He told them several times. He couldn't have been more plain. But for some reason, and we can talk about those, the disciples weren't willing to believe it or weren't believing it. They went to the tomb to the complete what? They weren't going to the tomb to find the empty tomb. They were going to the tomb to to embalm him, treat him with spices, take care of the body for permanent burial. Well, the first side of the empty tomb and the announcement of the angel that Jesus had risen threw them into a wild excitement. This is what the commentator says. They ran to tell the others, hurrying back and forth in alternating joy, fear, anxiety, wonder. Many things happened that aren't recorded. Of what is recorded, one writer gives in a single sentence what another described in detail. Some, uh, uh, here, let me get it, some... uh, Uh, have various general statements over various incidents. No one gives a complete account. But I'm going to run this through just real quick uh, to show you what he says. So just I want to give you a framework of what happened on the morning of the resurrection. And then I want to look at the book of John and why he picked 
the events that he picked. You get where I'm going with this? So look at this. At the first break of dawn, two or more groups of women from the places where they were staying in Jerusalem or Bethany, probably about a mile or two distance, start going their way toward the tomb very early in the morning. It's probably about this time that Jesus is emerging from the tomb, accompanied by angels who roll away the stone. And if you've been to Israel with us, it's fascinating. I always thought a big boulder. It's like this massive disc, real heavy, that's in a channel that you roll and it goes down into the channel and covers the the opening to the tomb. That's not how I pictured it. Anyway, uh, Jesus is emerging from the tomb accompanied by angels who roll away the stone and neatly fold the garments that Jesus was wearing. The guards, meantime, are frightened and dazed, go to tell priests who had placed them there. And about sunrise, as the women approach the tomb, Mary Magdalene, everybody know who Mary Magdalene is. You might not. She was healed of seven demons. Seven spirits came out of her. Jesus did it. Remember that uh, scripture that says, you know, he who's been forgiven much loves much. You know what I mean? Mary was like that, and her devotion shines through here. Okay, so Mary Magdalene, ahead of her group, seeing the tomb empty, but not seeing the angel nor hearing his announcements that Jesus has risen, turns and runs to tell Peter and John. Just bear with me, okay? The other women come closer, see and hear the angels, and hurry away by another route to tell the main group of this disciples. By this time, Peter and John reach the tomb and go in. That's not exactly true. Peter goes in. John stays on the outside. Then John goes in, okay? Peter and John, okay, they see the empty uh, garments and leave. John believing, Peter wondering. Mary Magdalene, meantime, following hard after Peter and John, returns to the tomb and remains alone weeping. Then she sees the angels and Jesus himself appears to her. Shortly thereafter, Jesus appears to the other woman as they're on the way to tell the disciples or as having told the disciples they're returning to the womb. This all probably happened in around an hour or two hours, okay? And this is sort of a mixing together, a a compilation, a summary of all the Gospels. I wanted you to hear that because I want you to see what happens in John. Here we go. Now, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, you know her now. And by the way, there were other ladies. You get it in the other gospels. You get their names. There were some other ladies with them. Now let's stop and call time out. I like to point this out all the time. Folks, listen, everywhere the gospel's gone, everywhere. Don't believe the lie of the media and the culture. Women have been elevated. Women are held in high esteem according to the gospel. And here is one place, because women at the time, not a good thing, but it was true, weren't allowed to testify in court. In fact, in some of the rabbinical teachings, it's really, I won't read them to you, it's really pretty harsh, okay, about the testimony of a woman. If you were trying to collude and make a statement that would hold up anywhere, the first thing that you would never do is have the first people be women to be the eyewitnesses. That's one of the great evidences to me that these people aren't lying. You would never do this in this time. Here, the women go first. The women are in tune. He who's forgiven much, loved much, and these ladies are devout. 
They're going, they'd seen, it's just so typical in human nature. They've seen Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus prepare the body and they're like, oh boy. Just like when I try to cook or make a grilled cheese sandwich. I can't even make a grilled cheese sandwich right. I have it and it's all cockeyed and the cheese is falling out. Nothing. I try to make it. Nothing works. Jan does it. It's perfect. It's cut. Blah, blah, blah. But that's what we are. And here they go and they're devoted. They go early. They know they're going to keep preparing the body. They want it to be a good thing so that... Uh, their Lord and Savior. It's, it's amazing. They have this devotion to the Lord. I ever thought about this? And they don't even know yet that he's risen again. We live on the side of knowing who the Lord is through the scriptures. We've never seen him. We know who the Lord is, and we know that he rose again. What a benefit. Here, they don't even have that benefit, but they go and it's still dark. Who likes to get up in the dark and the cold? And I want you to see this. I started this by the different levels. I want you to take note of every place in John chapter 20, where it says see or saw. And the reason I want you to do it, it's amazing. If you know the Greek, I don't know the Greek. I just look it up. What happens here is for the different people who see or saw the Holy Spirit asked John to use a different word. Not, not every time, but, but in the different people who see or saw, Mary first, Peter second, John third. It's a progressive word. The first word of, of see or saw just simply means, oh, I saw the chair there, right there, and I know there's a chair there. And then... When Peter looks, it's a progressively more uh, detailed meaning to the word. It's more like, oh yeah, I saw the chair and I'm sort of learning what it means that a chair is there. And so I'm getting the facts that I bet somebody sits in that. The third word that John, when John sees the evidences, it's more of what you're doing, <laughs> sitting in the chair. You have faith in the chair. You begin to go, whoa, I apprehended the chair. The chair came across my path. I saw it. I looked at it. I knew it was a chair, and I knew it probably could hold somebody, and now I'm going to give faith to it and sit in it. And that's the words that they're using here for each person. Isn't that fascinating? You're gonna, it's going to blow you away. See, saw, see, saw, like a teeter-totter. No, I'm kidding. But anyway... So here we go. And they, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now think about it. <laughs> he didn't need the tomb to be taken away. The tomb is not so that Jesus, or excuse me, the stone being rolled away is not for Jesus to get out. The stone is for people to look in so that we could see, so that they could see, and that we could see, and that there could be evidences. Why? Well, turn with me to the end of the chapter, verse 31. These are written that you may, say it with me, believe. John's doing something here, people. He's giving you a chapter on evangelism or pointing people to Christ and bringing them to a place, not that they just know about the chair, but that they'll sit in it with all their might. Get it? 
That's what he's doing here. He's bringing people to faith. He wants people to come to faith. Of course, the Lord brings them to faith, but he does it by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing what? Not cute little statements out on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Not that. Hearing the word of God. So here, the stone had been taken away so that people could look in and that there would be evidences. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple. Now tell me, who is the other disciple? You all know John, the one who's writing this, not John the Baptist, John, the writer, the disciple, this one, the other disciple whom Jesus loved. It's not bragging here. He's saying I've been so impacted by the Lord, the first thing that I identify with in my life is not that I'm a victim. It's not that I'm this or I'm that or I'm athletic or I'm whatever or I'm a musician or I'm a blah, 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 blah. It's that I'm loved by Jesus. Isn't that great? Now, we've got to remember, folks, John is a son of thunder. That was his nickname. He didn't go through some anger management course to get rid of his anger. He confessed his sin and repentance to the Lord. And as he hung out with the Lord, he became known as the apostle of love. He speaks more of love than any apostle. And why is it? Because he knows he's loved. You can't combat the dark by karate chopping the dark. You come in and flip on the lights and the Lord loves you. And that's something that you and I, if we could just know that, we are loved. Who are you? You're a loved one in Christ. John knew it and uh, he called himself that. He wasn't bragging. He just, it was the reality of how he lived, whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And I want you to see something so that you know that even though they're different, they fit together. And, it sh and she says, and we, why did she say we? Because there were other ladies there, but John just chose to identify Mary. You get it? There were other ladies. It's in, boom, like this with the other gospels. You can read about it there. So they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. Now, I want you to see something else, something I never got before. The last time we saw Peter, he was in disgrace himself. I mean, he felt bad. Would you agree with me? I mean, he had denied the Lord. The Lord met his eyes across the, uh, the courtyard. And, you know, impulsive Peter, he always wanted to slam his fist on the pulpit and say, I'll, I'll, I'll never deny you. I'll die for you. Whatever you need, man, I'm with you. And within hours, as he's living out of his faith, in his natural ability and not Holy Spirit, you know, you get it, not the, the ability given to him by the Lord. As he's living that out, within hours he's denied the Lord and it's devastating. Don't you think it's devastating? If you're here today and you've gone off the rails a little bit, maybe you're a prodigal, maybe you've walked away from the Lord, maybe whatever, and you don't feel good about it, <laughs> I want you to see what John did. Remember, at the cross... Jesus committed John, or excuse me, committed Mary unto John. Where would Mary be living now? John's house, probably. Guess who was at John's house with him? Peter. Here's John, the disciple of love. 
what did he do? This guy who had messed up, maybe some of even the other disciples are saying, get away from Peter. I mean, we, we didn't show up at the cross, but we certainly didn't do that. You know what John does? He goes and gets him. And he brings him home. And he says, come, live with me. We're, the Lord's going to do something. I know it, Peter. And so here, when she goes to find him, Peter and John are together. Wow, that's powerful. So here you have, she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we, that's because she was with other ladies, do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. Now let's just talk about something. Many people say, well, come on, the disciples could have stolen the body. Where was the body? The disciples could have stolen the body. Well, that's nigh impossible, folks. Uh, they were given, most people believe, a Roman guard, not a Jewish guard, a Roman guard. And if a Roman guard set their seal over that tomb, first of all, folks, it was the correct tomb. Some people say, well, maybe they got the wrong, the wrong tomb. Well, they paid particular attention in the other gospels of where they laid him, but also the Roman guard ain't getting it wrong. They're not messing up because they don't want to lose their lives. So the disciples couldn't have stolen the body. You get that? And we know for sure the enemies of the Lord didn't stole the, steal the body. Why do we know that? Well, all you would have had to do, do if you were an enemy of uh, Christians is you would have produced the body. If you would have produced the body and it was fake, Christianity would have ended right then. But they couldn't because Jesus really did rise again. So Peter therefore went out and the other disciples and were going to the tomb. <laughs> this is one of the greatest lines in all of scripture. This is my line. I would use this line right here if I was writing it. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter. My man John still has some sort of competitive streak. And I'm not exactly sure. Maybe he's doing it for that reason, to be funny. I don't know. Or to tell you, maybe Peter's a little bit older and he's a little bit younger, which is probably true. But boy, that makes me laugh. And I love John. I love John. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter <laughs> and came to the tomb first. I was first, he says. <laughs> and he's stooping down and looking in. He saw the linen clothes lying there. He saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he didn't go in. You get that? So he saw the linen clothes first. And in my Bible, it says lying there. There is sort of in italics. This is a phrase in the Greek that's trying to tell you that the grave clothes were orderly. Like if it was a wild uh, uh, removal of the body, you know, remember there was all kinds of spices, gummy spices, and ointments on there. It would have been very difficult for somebody to unwrap the body and keep the clothes orderly. Are you catching that? And he's writing in that way to tell you that on purpose. 
And so John gets there and he sees it. John, a little bit more contemplative, a little bit more thinker than Peter. Peter's more impulsive, right? So John gets there first because he's the better runner. He's in better shape. And he gets there and he sees them in an orderly fashion, yet he doesn't go in. And that makes sense because that's the way John would be. He would be more of a questioner, more of a looking around type of person. Peter, rush right in, right? Here he goes. And Simon Peter came following him, look, and went in the tomb. And he saw, are you getting it? You get in how many times the word saw is used or see. So he saw the linen clothes or cloths lying there. Now I want you to see something. There was a handkerchief that had been around his head. They were separate. I'll just leave that there for you. Anyway, you ask me about that afterwards if you don't know what I'm talking about. So here you go. He saw the linen cloths lying there. Again, it's talking about like in cocoon fashion. Are you getting this? It's not, it's not even decompressed necessarily. It's like somebody just came out of the claws and they're intact. That's the phrase here, lying there. And then he says there was this handkerchief that had been around his head, but it wasn't lined with the linen cloth, but somebody got up, it doesn't say that, but that's the intimation, and folded together all in a place by itself, as if to say, not in a rush, orderly, everything's fine, and I'm glad you came and looked at the cloth, in other words. You get what I'm saying? Like, this was on purpose. That's what the writer is trying to tell you here. And with each of these people, Mary, Peter, John, remember, the word for see and saw is different for the people. And for John, it's that last one where you don't just see the chair, you don't just know what the chair does, but you actually sit in the chair. That's the saw that they use when it comes to John here. So Peter sees it folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the first uh, tomb first, get it? He just keeps needling him a little bit. Isn't that great? And then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw, and there it is right there, the big word for saw. And guess what happened? He believed. Now, time out. There's a lot of other things that happened here. You can just go in the other Gospels and you can read about it. That used to puzzle me. And, you know, when I was young and I used to read the Bible, didn't really have any training. Nobody really talked to me about the Bible. I would read the Bible and go, huh, I don't get it. Why don't they just, I want some bullet points here. Give me the hours and when it happened and all that sort of thing. I didn't get it. But now it makes more sense. And even today, I want you to see something. This is written. In a way, we've seen so far in this gospel, look at this, water into wine. I mean, who does that? Sick people healed. Sinning people healed. Evil men healed. Death and sorrow come into the family. And Jesus is solving that. And now that we get, watch this, now that we get to the pinnacle of everything that John wants to say, he says by the Holy Spirit, I want to focus on one thing, or I want you to, John, to focus on one thing, the greatest miracle of all. 
It's not getting watches or fancy shoes or a house or a car or having this amazing career or life as the world knows it. The greatest miracle of all is when God touches a heart and they turn from their sin in repentance, watch and believe and give their life over to Jesus Christ. I never saw this before this weekend. That's what this is. Here he goes with three people, three people from three different angles. Here's this lady. And she's been in the darkness, man. I mean, the darkness, the evil. She's been in the evil somehow, some way. We don't know exactly, but she opened herself up or, and, and, and these demons came in. And she was tormented. Can you imagine what would happen with seven demons in your life being possessed by seven demons? Thrown around, unsuspected, fear, anger itself, hate yourself, whatever. Can you imagine? People would look upon her in really mm, bad ways. Even in the, you know, godly communities. She was an outcast. And she is coming to a place, we'll see in a minute, where she is going to believe. What, what about Peter? Well, Peter, of course, I mean, Peter, on this rock, you know, I'm going to build my church, you know, what was the rock? Peter might even thought, maybe he's talking about me. Some groups in religious society even think to this day that they think that that's what Jesus was talking about. Maybe Peter thought a little bit about that, but Jesus was talking about himself as the rock. And on that rock, we'll build our church, right? Or the church will be built. But here you got Peter, and he's been with him for all these times, and he's part of that inner circle. And you know how human nature is. I'm part of the inner circle. I mean, you know, come on. I mean, he talks to me more, and he gives me secrets. And, you know, I, I know Jesus. If you need something, let's, I'll talk to him for you. Stuff like that. And, you know, and, and, and he could be such a loudmouth, Anybody here, does that resonate with? It resonates with me. You say things and, you know, as it's coming out, you're just like, oh, no, it's coming out. And I know it's going to be bad, but I can't help it and it's coming. And now, yes. And yet, you know, there was still the give and take and Jesus, uh, you know, uh, Jesus is, you know, sort of just being very patient with him. But, you know, I mean, Jesus... Tells him like it is. I mean, one time he tells him, I don't, you're not going to the cross, Lord. And he says, what do you mean? You're Satan talking like that. Get behind me. I mean, right? And so the Lord would teach him and rebuke him, but they maintained a relationship. And then, you know, here you got, he was privileged to be in the upper room. And, oh, Jesus gets down and washes his feet. And he just slams, you know, you could just see it. I'll never leave you. I mean, never deny you. I'm no way. I love you that much. And with hours, within hours, he's denied the Lord. I mean, the heartache and the sickness and the knot in the stomach and just, it would be bad, right? You know what I'm saying? Here. And then John here, who I sort of gave it away. You know, he was a rich guy, probably. His dad owned a fishing business and had servants. And he probably was privileged as he grew up. And, you know, he called and he did give his life to the Lord. And he left it all. But, you know, he was used to the good things of life. And he had an anger problem. I mean, he was a sinner, uh, angry sinner. And the Lord sort of, uh, as not sort of, but did solve that. But when did it all happen? What, what was the thing that made the difference. It was the resurrection. The resurrection. 
And you're going to see it here. And they're all coming to these stages of belief. And here the first one is John. And so see, this just sends shivers down my spine. I mean, he's telling you the greatest miracle of all time is a changed heart and living in resurrection power. Amazing. Should we ever get tired of proclaiming the praises of the Lord, speaking of the cross and the forgiveness that he has uh, rendered to us and what he did on the cross and that he didn't stay in the tomb, but that he rose again. It is the greatest and highest and most beautiful subject. It's what should fill our days and our hearts so that we become people who know, who know like way down in there, deep, that we're loved. So look what happens for John. He's contemplative. He stays outside. But when he saw, he knew what it was. He saw and he believed. What did he see? He saw those grave clothes, folks, and he knew. There was a resurrection, not a stealing, not a wrong tomb, a resurrection. And so there was something about these garments that were just so perfectly placed. For as yet, they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. When I read that, you know what I automatically say? I almost want to hit myself on the head and go, come on, people. How could you not know? He's told you 10 times in the last several years, and as it got closer, he told you a lot. He said there would only be one sign, and they, he said it in the presence of his disciples, there's only going to be one sign, and that's going to be like Jonah and the whale. As Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, and then he was, comes out, and he's resurrected in such a sense. That's going to be the sign, and, and yet this is Scripture, Yet, they didn't know the scriptures. What scriptures are we talking about? Well, probably some of the scriptures like Psalm 16. Do you know in Psalm 16 it says that the Messiah will see no decay? They knew these scriptures. Probably Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. And, you know, all through the 50s there in Isaiah when it talks about he was marred beyond recognition. He gave his back to them. Talking about being... Uh, uh, you, you know, uh, pierced uh, amongst or numbered amongst the transgressors, probably Psalm 22 when it describes crucifixion. Uh, he would know the Psalms like in Ezekiel 18 that says the sin, or excuse me, the soul that sins surely shall die. Wow, I should be in a book. But anyway, you get it. I mean, right? He would know all these and he would piece it together. But, but, but even that, he, didn't, he wasn't able to piece all these together, that he must rise again from the dead. Wow, interesting. But here he was, and he saw and believed. And it was all based on the resurrection. That's what did it. That was the tipping point. There's, listen, when you're maybe in your own life, maybe you are not convinced, maybe you're a believer who believes in the chair, you believe what the chair can do but you've never in faith sat in the chair. Now, what I'm talking about is the Lord. Maybe you know about the Lord. You even know all about the Lord. Last week we talked about, you can have even pity on the Lord when you read through this. But that's not the same as accessing the Lord or surrendering your life to the Lord or receiving the free gift from the Lord, which is your life for His in repentance. 
Maybe you've never sat in a chair. That's something that you'll want to do, like these folks, and come to a place of believing. Maybe you don't know all the scriptures. Maybe you don't know how to put it all together. But you know that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior. Well, believe. Access the gift of God. That's what the Bible's telling you here. So then the disciples went away again to their own homes, to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting one at the head and the other at the feet. Now this is another level of deepness. (laughs) Is that a way to say it? Anyway, this is another level now, folks. Remember... In Leviticus 16, that's the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, one day a year, the great high priest would go into the tabernacle, then the temple, but into the tabernacle. And what would he do? He would take off his colorful garments, and what would he put on? He would put on linen garments. By the way, time out. I'm going to go on a little rabbit trail here about philosophy of ministry. (laughs) And then we'll come back to the story. This is one important thing about philosophy of ministry. What would you know about colored heavy garments versus white linen lighter garments? Well, here's what you would know. There'd be less sweating in the white linen garments. When you're ministering to people, folks, and laying your life down, if you're sweating about it, get out. Don't do it. Why? Because you're doing the ministry as unto the Lord. And if you're irritated with the people and you don't want to talk to them, you just want to do the ministry, get out. I don't mean that in a bad way like I'm kicking you out. That's not what I'm saying. Take a time out. Go be with the Lord. Speak to the Lord and get to that place where you're ministering as unto the Lord again so that you're not sweating it. You get it? Okay. There's part of my talk for the 23rd. But anyway, here he goes in and he's got linen garments in Leviticus 16. But what happens after the sacrifice has been uh, uh, put on the altar, uh, what, uh, has been completed. They've done the sacrifice in the uh, Leviticus 16 story about the Day of Atonement. What happens is he goes back and he puts back on his clothes, his colored clothes. He takes off the linen clothes. What was Jesus in? He was in a red scarlet robe. They put it on him, the king robe. He was stripped and he was put in linen cloths. And now, look at this, this reminds you of what? There's one angel on one side of the slab in which they laid him, and another angel on another side of the slab in which they laid him. You could look it up in Exodus, I think it's 25, 18 through 19. That, listen, that's the mercy seat. Watch, that's the mercy seat in which the priest in Leviticus was going to. That's where the Lord would meet with them, above the mercy seat, and they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. In other words, Jesus, you got to read this chapter in conjunction with the entire book of Hebrews, is saying, you know how we used to do those old sacrifices and all that stuff, and you had to keep doing it and doing it, and every year, 
I'm that perfect sacrifice. I'm also the great high priest. I'm the great high priest and the sacrifice on which was laid upon the altar. You getting that? That's what John is trying to show you right here. (laughs) That he saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet. And we debate because in two different gospels, or excuse me, in, in, in the different gospels, some people only see one angel. And some people see two angels. That don't shock me at all. Sometimes you see an accident or hear, and the, the, the police officer or whatever will say, well, how many people were across the street? And you'll say, well, I, I saw two. <laughs> and you know, another witness will say, well, I saw four. I mean, these are traumatic, dramatic. You can't remember every last detail. Anyway, he saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet. That evokes uh, images of the mercy seat where the body of Jesus had lain. And when you go to Israel with us and you go into the tomb, you go into the tomb and you see what a tomb is like. You see how they could lay that uh, uh, Jesus on uh, there uh, with his head inside the tomb, feet towards the door. That's how they would do it. And uh, you have to stoop down in and it goes right along with this story. So they do that. Now, <laughs> Here's what I would commend to you. I won't do it right now, but go and think about what Jesus's ministry is as the great high priest, our great high priest, and his sacrifice. Read Hebrews. And when you read Hebrews, come back to this, and you're going to go, whoa, and your heart's going to just leap and soar at the things that Jesus accomplished on our behalf. It's beautiful. Well, Mary stood outside. You saw that, and she saw these angels. And then in verse 13, it says this. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around. Why she turned around, don't know. Maybe she heard something behind her. Maybe the angels were looking behind her, don't know. But she turns around, and I want you to see, there's the word saw again. It's just over and over and over. They saw, or she saw, Jesus standing there. And did not know that it was Jesus. Why? Some people say it's because she was shocked and she was emotional and she had tears in her eyes and it was early in the morning and it might have been dark and the sun, whatever. Uh, but maybe there was something different in some uh, of the rest of the chapters and in the other gospels. Give this idea that there might have been something different in the glorified resurrected appearance of Jesus, even though it was still him. And that would make sense too, because your body in the glorified resurrected state is going to be you, but not you. It's going to be you, but a different you. It's going to be you, but a glorified you. (laughs) And so here, she doesn't recognize him at first, that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? I love it, man. These are just what lawyers would do. What? Ask questions. Why do you think Jesus asked questions? Because he wants it to be your faith. You don't have to know all the answers about everything. (laughs) I like to know the answers. Keep seeking them out. Be a Berean. Do it. But sometimes it's just good just to sit at the feet of Jesus and just be devoted and hear from him and love him and receive from him. And he just says, well, why are you weeping? Tell me. In other words, He's going to fix that for her, but he wants to draw it out of her. And whom are you seeking? Notice he knows she's seeking a person. This isn't to trick her. This is to turn her to belief. 
Questions are good. If you don't have all the answers, that's not a bad thing. The Lord will keep at it with you. Come reason with me, he says. So she, supposing him to be the gardener, I find that funny, I don't know why, but that's funny, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I'll take him away. I just want you to see this again. She doesn't know that he's resurrected yet. And this is the language of devotion and love. What does love do? It bears burdens. She's willing. She knew Jesus. I don't know how much Jesus weighed, but he probably was put together okay. He was a builder and he worked with, you know, building materials and all that sort of thing. And he was rough and tough probably. And a dead limp body would be really heavy. And she says, I, you know, tell me where you've laid him and I'm going to take him away with me. That's the language of servanthood and love and devotion. And Jesus says to her, isn't this just so beautiful? He doesn't give her a great theological thing. He just says her name, Mary. And there was something about the way he said it. She knew instantly in his voice. Remember the sheep hear his voice and follow him. A lot of times you get people ask, well, how do I know I'm a Christian? And I always bring that verse back up. Well, if you're a sheep, you hear his voice and holla him. And you go and people then say, well, I never hear him audibly. And I say, well, not everybody does. Or, but where do you hear the Lord? You're hearing him right now, not me. You're reading the Bible and it's doing something to you. And the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart and the Lord is speaking to you right now. Right? So you do hear him. And I always say, if you're bothered by it, that's a good sign because the Holy Spirit is nudging you on into this. But he just uses the one word and it's beautiful. He could have used any word, by the way. You get that? Hey, it's me. I'm Jesus. He doesn't. I want you to catch it. He uses her name. When I was examining the claims of Christ, I thought God loved the world, and he does, but like this big blob. Like he just loved millions and millions of people. But to love me personally, I didn't know about that. But the more I come to see in the scriptures who he loves and how he loves, he loves you individually. In fact, we studied one psalm this week that he says he rules over and instructs the nations but he also instructs you personally in the way in which you need it instructed. Isn't that great? That means he's a great dad. He takes the time to know you, and he takes the time to know your strengths, your weaknesses. He knows what trips you up, what doesn't trip you up, and he leads you in the paths of godliness and peace and righteousness. But watch, it's tailored to you. Maybe, so here's another thing about ministry. Don't get on people who don't have the same ministry that you have. I get it. Mark and Catherine, they've been called to go down to do the homeless. I don't go down to the homeless. It's not that I don't love the homeless and don't pray for them. I just have different ministries. And it's not like somebody's saying to me, nor should say to me, man, you need to be down there. By the way, some people do say that to me sometimes. But wait a minute. What if I haven't been called to go down there? Now, I'm not saying I haven't been called to help people out or anything, but you get what I'm saying. Maybe I'm not called to the nursing home ministry that you're doing. Well, don't sweat it, people. Maybe it's not your ministry. Maybe, 
You get it? Don't fight about those sorts of things. Don't put a trip on people if they're, it's not their ministry. Well, anyway, uh, Jesus says to her, Mary, it's beautiful. He uses her name and he draws her right back. Oh, so beautiful. And she turns and says to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Wow. And he rec- she recognizes him. And Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, Mary, or don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Now, listen, he didn't say don't touch me. Because other people touch him in the scriptures. You got to read them all together. They grab him around the the legs. What he's saying is don't hold on to me in the way that I am right now. Why? Don't hold him in that way because I have to ascend to the father. And who sits at the right hand of our father? The great high priest. And what is he doing? He's living to make intercession for you and I. I don't think personally it's like this. Oh, Tim, you just messed up right there. I saw it. Okay, I'll pray to the Lord for you. I don't think it's that way. Here's what I think it is. Lord, there's Tim. There's you. Here's my blood. Here's what I suffered for him. He has access to you now, the great high priest. That's what I think it is. And so that's who he is, right? He's going to ascend to the Father, and that's his current ministry. And you look into it, and if you do look into it, you'll be blessed. So Mary came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that he'd spoken these things to her. Can you imagine? It doesn't say it in here. Can you imagine the excitement or even the, what? Come on. Some are excited. Some are uh, skeptical because we all have different personalities. Some people just believe easy. Some people need a little bit more prompting. Would you agree? So I can imagine that scene. Come on, Mary. Seriously? You got the, uh, an eighth demon going on over there or what? But no, she'd spoken these things. And then at the same time, or then the same day at evening. Now you need to know this. He doesn't tell you in here, but several times during that day, Jesus appeared to people. Jesus appeared to people. And I always wondered, why doesn't he put that in here? Well, I've already sort of let the cat out of the bag. Because he's trying to show you the stories of these deep, hurt, wounded, lovely, wonderful people who believed. Which is the greatest miracle of all. Now, all these things did happen, though. The road to the Emmaus, he appears to Peter, some other things. But the same day at evening, being the first day of the week. First day, man. I just love that. This is why the church starts to gather on the first day of the week. This is it. Do you know you don't gather on the Sabbath? (laughs) Please, people, know it. You don't gather on the Sabbath. Today is not the Sabbath. (laughs) Yesterday was the Sabbath. The Old Covenant says this. Work, 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 rest. The New Covenant says this. Rest. Work, work, work. What do I mean? Because Jesus is our rest and our glory, and our triumph, and our love, and our devotion. And so we're not going to wait to the end. 
He rose on the first day of the week. That's where we're going to be the first day of the week. By the way, if you want to worship on Saturday, you should do it. Paul clears it up. Go worship on Saturday. Go worship on Monday. Go worship on Sunday. Go worship on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It doesn't matter. Days don't matter anymore. You can rest and Sabbath every day, all day, anywhere. Now, the Bible does say don't forsake coming to a local body. But Jesus is our rest, folks, and we do it on the first day of the week because when I was growing up, here's how I thought of church. Work like crazy, party like something else, and then if I have anything left over, I might find some time to go there. That's how I thought of it. And now that the Lord's come in my life and your life, here's what we do. The first day of the week, the best that we have to offer, the only thing that we have to offer, the fruit of our lips, our heart, our lives, we'll go give it first. Isn't that beautiful? Why? Because Jesus was the ultimate first fruit of the harvest. He paved the way into heaven for you. And now all of us are coming behind those who are in Christ. We're the harvest. So we worship on the first day of the week. But you can worship any day, the same day at evening when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Watch, it's really, they don't know what's going on. People are mad and angry because that body's not in there. Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. Isn't that a weird thing to say? Just think about it. Wouldn't Jesus say, hey guys, hey ladies, how's it going? It's me. I just wanted to come and clear some things up, and here's my itinerary. He says this right off the bat. Boom, he comes in, how he appears, we, you know, no doors involved, just here he is, and something about him, it's just he's, but anyway, and he just says, peace be with you. Why? Because there is now peace with God. Shalom, he says to these Jewish folks. Shalom. It's been reached. You can now have peace with God and the peace of God. All the walls are broken down. Do you get that? And I've come in here, and the first thing I've said to you is shalom. Incredible to me. You can have the peace of God. You do have peace with God when you surrender and believe. That's what he's telling you. And when he had made, it said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad. Watch this. When they what? saw the Lord. Crazy, isn't it? I never seen, I never seen so many saws in my life. <laughs> anyway, I, okay. So Jesus said to them again, watch. You ever thought about this? He really wants them to have peace. <laughs> and maybe that's what the Lord's saying to you. He really wants you to have peace, folks. There's going to be really difficult times. There's going to be deaths. There's going to be things that go away. There's going to be scars. But you can have peace with God. And to prove it again, he, Jesus says to them again, now that I told you I, there's peace with God and you can have the peace of God, I really want you to have peace to do your mission. What? What do you mean? As the Father has sent me, I also send you. In other words, we got to go tell people. You got to go. You're gonna. Your your mission is to go tell people about me, and you're gonna need peace to do that. 
peace. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I believe right there is when they had their born again, repenting and born again, receiving of life of the Holy Spirit right there in the upper room. And then what he says is, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Now, he's not saying to his disciples, you have the power to forgive sins. He's not saying that. Only God has the power to forgive sins. What he's saying is, part of your presentation is you're going to proclaim to people that your sins can be forgiven. You ever run into somebody and you've shared with them about the Lord, and they say, well, that's all fine and good, but God could never forgive me. You might have said that to yourself. I've said that to myself. God could never forgive me. People say that, and see, isn't it a joy when you share with somebody, they surrender their life to Christ. You know what's cool to say uh, or to, to remind them? Ah. <sighs> You have a fresh start. Your sins have been forgiven. They've been put away, past, present, and future. He counts them against you no more. That's one of the greatest things that could ever come out of our mouths because we have seen right in front of us that a person changed their heart. Well, Thomas called the twin. One of the 12 wasn't with them. We don't know why he wasn't with them. And when Jesus came, the other disciples therefore said to him, we've seen the Lord. So he said to them, well, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, well, I won't believe. And now watch this. Now, after eight days, this is just a different personality. There's some people, you know, you have to go through all the different arguments. The Lord has prepared their heart that way. And when they go through all the arguments, then they surrender their life to the Lord. Some people just hear the gospel and boom, believe. You agree? Well, here, he's not one of them. I don't begrudge him. I don't think he's a bad guy. There are people in here who want to go through those sorts of things, right? And Thomas asked these questions, and then eight days later, fascinating, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and he stood in the midst and said, what? Hey, Thomas, I'm here to prove everything you need to know. There was a message of peace to just one. Peace, shalom to you. It didn't matter if it was 10 people or one people or person (laughs) or 500 persons in Galilee he would appear to, Corinthians tells us. It didn't matter. He came to bring peace. Peace in what way? Peace with God and the peace of God. He broke down, he breaks down the walls And he says, peace to you. And then he says to Thomas something that's really amazing. He answers Thomas's question from one week prior when Thomas wasn't even there. Thomas had expressed it in some way, you know, during the week or whatever. And Jesus knew his questions. And he just said, he just answered it perfectly. Oh, you said you wouldn't believe unless you put your finger into the print of the nails. Well, how about here? Reach your finger here. You said you wouldn't believe unless you put your hand in the side. Well, reach your hand here. And he put it into his side or my side. Do not be unbelieving, 
but believing. <laughs> I kind of never really paid attention to that verse, that end of that verse. <laughs> but if you wanted to sum up the book of John, that just might be it. Don't be unbelieving, be believing. And I'm going to draw you and woo you and pursue you. You're going to have to repent and come to me. I'm going to keep drawing and repent or pursuing and loving you and sharing and being graceful. I'm going, I'm never giving up on you. And Thomas answered and said to him, watch this. For our Jehovah's Witness friends and other friends who don't believe in the deity of Christ, Thomas knew. He says, my Lord, not just my Lord, he, you are God. It must be so because why? He knew he was dead and he knew he rose again. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. And isn't this beautiful? This is speaking of us. Blessed are those who have not seen, none of us have seen Jesus, and yet have believed, and we have the word of God. And truly, Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you, or that believing, you may have life in his name. I hope this. You'll see all these saws. <laughs> of course, I want you to believe in the resurrection. But I just wanted to read you a couple things as we close out. What is the meaning and the importance of the resurrection? Listen to this in Romans 1.4. Write these down, and then you go back and read them. Romans 1.4. He was declared to be the Son of God, watch this, with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, you see the power of God through the resurrection of his son Jesus. Romans 1.4. Everything that Jesus claimed is proven by the fact that Jesus has risen. He claimed he was God. He claimed he came to take away the sins of the world. And, and all those things, you know that. It shows that he is the promised Messiah. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, Acts 2.36 says. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. How about this? This act, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ acknowledges just like on the day of atonement in the old testament when the priest would come back out when jesus came risen from the dead it acknowledges that god accepted christ's sacrifice and death or death for sin romans 4:25 he was delivered over to death for our sins watch watch this is so awesome. You talk about having peace with God and was raised to life for our justification. Justification, it's a bigger word than it needs to be. It means you've been declared just, forgiven, not guilty. Well, you're not getting that. If you ever been in a courtroom, you ever been in a courtroom? My first case was a rape case. It was tense in there, man. 
I mean really tense. And I'll never forget when that jury came back in that room, the tension. I was scared to death. And you know that little bit where they have that little piece of paper and they hand it over to the judge and the judge sort of reads it? Whew. I'm not kidding you. I, my knees buckled and I was the attorney. I was going nowhere. I was going to lunch. This guy, he was facing lots of years in prison. He was tense. And here's what I'm trying to say. This is a more dramatic thing. <laughs> because the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means the wrath of God is coming or upon you. Without Jesus in your life or without Jesus in my life, the wrath of God is upon me. We're children of wrath. God says, you know, not a smart aleck way. I would say it in a smart aleck way. Okay, you want to depend upon your own righteousness? Great. I'll be totally fair to you. And we'll open up the books. And if you've fallen short of the glory according to your righteousness, well, you'll be in the great lake of fire or the lake of fire. But I'll judge you completely righteous. But if you want to surrender your life to Christ, the legal or spiritually legal decree that's coming because of that is the gavel comes down. I've looked at the verdict slipped, God says. And here's what I see. Jesus is standing on Tim's behalf. Not guilty. That's justification. It's incredible. It's why you sing. It's why you do things. It's why you minister. It's your life now for his. You understand that you were headed for eternal separation from God, but because of what Jesus accomplished in your behalf, you'll be there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, singing his praises. That's justification. By the way, I think the death and resurrection of Jesus answers every question of life. If you're lonely, if you're um, anxious, if you're fearful, if you uh, are addicted, I think the cross of Jesus Christ, the power, and, and, and a hundred other things, the blood of Christ is the answer. And his resurrection. The Lord wants us to live in resurrection power. I could go on. There's many other things about the resurrection of Christ. I'm going to ask them to come, and we're going to sing, I think. And then we'll go. But here's what I want to just say to you. If you've never sat in a chair, you want to. You, you know about Christ. You even believe Christ is who he says he is, but you've never surrendered your life to Christ. Well, today's the day to do that so that you could be cleared not guilty and, oh, by the way, receive his righteousness. If you've never done that, do that. I'm going to pray. You pray along with me. If Listen, listen. If you've strayed from the Lord, 
and you're just living out here and you're doing your own thing, you, you know and you've surrendered your life, but you've gotten away, well, I want to pray for you too. So let's bow our heads. And here's the other thing. I want you to come up and talk with me after. If the Lord's speaking to your heart. Here we go. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this word of belief and believing. I thank you that John took Peter in. (laughs) Well, Lord, we need you. We need you every hour. But beginning our relationship with you, it's a surrender of our life. It's our life for yours. It's repentance knowing we're sinners and turning away from that and walking towards you. And if there's anybody in here who needs salvation today and is tired of just living life, I pray, we pray together, that they would give their hearts to you now as they recognize they're a sinner and repent and turn and run towards you. And Lord, if there's anybody in here who's strayed or is straying, and they just want to come back to you like John, or Peter, I'm sorry, with John, Well, Lord, I just pray that you would just gobble them up in your loving arms. You'd surround them now. And as they say, Lord, what they've done, what they've been doing, as they just confess their sin to you or our sin to you, Lord, I just pray you'd welcome them back like the story of the prodigal. And Lord, I thank you for this word. And I pray for those who uh, are following and trusting. I pray this would be a great encouragement, Lord. I pray it would be a great encouragement to share our faith and to pray for the people that we do. And I pray, Lord, that many would come to know you before your, uh, your return for us. Lord, I believe the time is short. And so I just pray and ask that you'd fill this body with your Holy Spirit. And I pray you'd give every single person in here, even as they walk out these doors and go to do the next thing, spiritual appointments to share your love and light in Jesus' name. Amen.